look, you can't fix stupid, but you can scare stupid. And I want people to be thinking about their guns in their homes with their children there. It's clear some people that were derelict in their duties, they didn't uh, search a backpack and they never did anything prophylactically to prevent this except for have a meeting, but even then, they were given warnings allegedly in this meeting. The January 6th committee says you're not cooperating. Do you feel you're meeting your obligation to answer the subpoena? And do you feel like you're being transparent with the American people? You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin introduced the Safe Guns, Safe Kids Act in the wake of the tragic shooting at Oxford High School last month that left four dead and seven injured. Under Slotkin's proposed legislation, gun owners would be required to store their firearms outside of the reach of minors and face up to five years in prison if a minor injures themselves or others with a weapon that was supposed to be off limits. Congresswoman Slotkin with Guy Gordon. Yeah, well, it, it basically comes directly from, you know, what went on in Oxford and after going to vigils and church services and funerals and community meetings, the one thing everyone seemed to agree on is that these parents really failed this child and Um, And frankly, um, we were lucky that our prosecutor had a mountain of evidence that connected these parents to sort of, you know, handing their child a gun when they knew he had issues. Um, So she was able to do this unusual thing and charge the parents um, for involuntary manslaughter. But, you know, as I started to learn about it, that's actually a really hard thing to do. And lots of other cases where a child takes a gun and does something terrible, there's no such option. Um, and I just thought that that was a hole in our our legal system. And so we're proposing a bill. It, it's just for folks who have kids in the house. And it's to say, if you're a gun owner and we have no problem with that, just, you know, lock your gun, store your gun, put it somewhere a child can't access. Because if that child gets it and hurts themselves or someone or, or you know, carries out a crime, you can be held criminally liable for up to five years in prison. So there are cynics out there that would say, look, you can't fix stupid. And we've seen a pandemic of stupid in in some cases with these things. Can you really legislate responsibility this way? Uh, These child access prevention laws, when they have been rolled out in states, and I believe that 31 states, including, you know, gun-loving states like Texas and Oklahoma, have them. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Have they really made a difference? You know, I think it's hard to know because we just have so many states that don't have it. I think, look, you can't fix stupid, but you can scare stupid. And I want people to be thinking about their guns in their homes with their children there. Um, And not just for something like this, you know, a school shooting, something terrible where a child, a disturbed child takes that weapon and kills other children in a school. But what about that story in Flint where the six-year-old, you know, shot another six-year-old, just found the gun and played cops and robbers? Or the, the household with a teenager who goes out, steals the gun, sticks up a 7-Eleven or a gas station or something. I just want parents to think twice mm-hmm. and say, Ish, you know, I, I better lock this thing up. A gun lock is $10. That weapon that these parents in the Oxford shooting bought their kid on Black Friday was $500. So a $10 gun lock or putting it somewhere safe that the child can't access, I think that that's a reasonable level of personal responsibility. Most people, I think, do that. But if mm-hmm. they don't, I want it I want it publicized so it deters the stupid. It can't fix it. It deters it. 
So how would you define under your legislation what a reasonable effort to secure the gun would be? And what happens in those cases? Listen, kids are crafty, uh, especially yep. teenagers. Yep. And, and there is yep. some evidence on the part of the, the Crumbly's defense counsels here saying that that gun was secured. And they haven't said how or, uh, you know, how aggressive those measures were, but that somehow uh, the accused shooter, Ethan Crumbly, overcame those efforts. In that kind of a scenario, can you still hold the, uh, the, the parents responsible if they've taken reasonable steps, but that those steps were overcome? Well, again, I'll, I will, uh, I'm not going to take their word for it that they did the reasonable amount of work to protect that weapon. Um, I want to see the actual facts because there's lots of information, as I understand, I understand it, it that's yeah. the contrary. But, but I think this is the thing. We know you can't be perfect. If we know teenage. Look, I remember being a teenager. I was crafty too. Um, but that's why we use this um, legal standard of reasonableness. Me- meaning, did you make an effort? Right? Did you leave mm-hmm. the gun on the okay. coffee table, or did you make a reasonable effort to make it secure? And that's a legal standard all the time um, used in law. So. I'm not asking everyone to be perfect. I'm asking them to just make an effort. And again, you know, we see almost uh, any time you mention gun legislation, it is presumed that it somehow will impede someone's uh, Second Amendment right to obtain uh, personal defense or a weapon to, to secure their home. This isn't one of those instances. This is a gun ownership responsibility piece. Right. And frankly, it doesn't say one word about purchasing a gun. Um, I'm, I come from a gun-owning family. I grew up with guns. I carried a Glock and an M4 semi-automatic on three tours in Iraq. My husband carried a, day, a weapon every day. He was deployed for 30 years. So I, this is not about getting the gun. This is about securing the gun from children. This is a child safety issue. And, you know, you want to look at the, the families who lost children in Oxford and tell them that a $10 gun lock isn't worth it? I, mm-hmm. I, that to me, that to me is like I have to answer to them, and uh, these are beautiful right. children who are gone. I think we all agree that our children deserve to be safe. So that's that's what it's about. It's not about a Second Amendment right. We have millions of responsible gun owners in Michigan. It is part of our heritage here of right. hunting, of you know being sort of the wilderness, and uh, so that's not the issue. It's child safety when you bring the gun home. The Oxford Community School District is claiming qualified immunity in a motion filed in Eastern District Court on Wednesday in regards to a $100 million lawsuit brought against them by attorney Jeffrey Figer on behalf of two shooting survivors. Todd Flood helps make sense of the motion with Chris Renwick. Every government agency, uh, i.e. the school district, because it's a government body, it uh, receives money from uh, the government, obviously, and from uh, uh, the millages. So, yes, it does have the protection of this iron, if you will, for everyone to understand this iron shield around it called governmental immunity. So the question becomes, how do you pierce that governmental immunity? And that is done through certain claims. In this particular case, it was a state-created danger. Now you have to show in essence, the gross negligence to pierce, to have the, the armor, if you will, or the, the bullets, if you will, to pierce that, that uh, governmental immunity shield. And every case, as I talk about, is derived through facts and applied to the law. Here, was there a state-created danger? Was there an increased likelihood of this unbelievable, horrific act to happen? And look at the facts. 
You know, a teacher raises the red flag. A teacher says there is a danger. She says, I see photographs. I take photographs, uh, or I mean pictures, by the, by the, the student uh, drawing out the carnage and drawing out blood everywhere, the hopelessness. She says she takes a picture of him searching for ammunition. So she's raising mm-hmm. these red flags. Now it goes to the next level. Those people don't do anything with it. Did that increase the likelihood of this danger? Does, is that enough to pierce the governmental immunity? Those are fact-based questions. And realistically, looking at it, you know, it's who knew what, when, and what did they do about it? It does seem uh, clear to, you know, me that that's going to be enough to get through the, what we call a motion to dismiss, a 12B6 motion, a motion to dismiss, because it raises a question of fact and meets the threshold that the government, i.e. the school, is, uh, could be held liable in this case. So is it a defense? It's a defense for every government agency. You are protected when you're a servant working for the government. However, when you do things that are in gross negligence, when you do things that create the risk, when you violate someone's rights, yeah, you can be held accountable as an individual working for the government. At what point in the legal proceedings here will we figure out uh, if school officials are able to hide, as you as you mentioned, uh, or at least shield themselves from that ironclad shield? Uh, at what point in the in the in the court process now will we determine whether or not that's something that 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 the school district is going to be able, if that's the the road that they're going to be able to go down? So. Um, those motions are being filed, um, and it, it, under under federal law, those motions can be heard without discovery being taken. However, in most cases, in most cases, there is when there is governmental immunity. Uh, I shouldn't say most, but in a lot, limited discovery is taken, depositions, interrogatories, those things. So, to answer your question. There is a rule that allows a defendant defending someone under governmental immunity to have that heard first without discovery. If they lose, they have the right to go to an appeal on the Sixth Circuit. However, um, most of the time, there is limited discovery allowed uh, by the judge. This has to be okayed by the judge in an order granted based on a good showing. And discovery is limited to what, you know, it's not a fishing expedition, but it's limited to what happened, who knew what, could have been prevented, all the things that could thwart any kind of protection under governmental immunity. That usually is done, and then motions are heard. So Mm -hmm. I don't suspect these motions will be, you know, dispositive or, you know, ruled on right away. I think it'll take time. You know, there's so many victims here and there's so many cases that are going to come forth, you know, really. um, And it's just so raw. And so, you know, the the victims up there are still grieving and mourning what what really if playing chess here and not checkers thinking ahead in this lawsuit, um, there's going to be more to follow. So what. I can see happening ultimately, and hopefully so, where there's a bridge built to resolve because there's going to be so many victims and try to get the attorneys and the defense 
to get a, a bridge builder to come to an understanding of how to resolve this case. Because it's clear, right, it, it, there is uh, some people that were derelict in their duties. They didn't uh, search a backpack. They only needed reasonable suspicion. They never did anything prophylactically to prevent this except for have a meeting. But even then, they were given warnings, allegedly, in this meeting. Um, so nothing was thwarted. So the, yeah. the bottom line is, is, how do you resolve this the kids need to fill the stadiums next year. They need to be in school. They need to have the love of the community. We always talk about one big thing of our districts, right? And what is that? Our schools. So we need Oxford to heal. And the best way to do that is trying to get someone, uh, and there's brilliant minds out there that have done this type of work. You know, um, Mary Baroff, you know, how she handled the, the tragedies of the deaths that took place with the airbags. You know, there's there's cases mm-hmm. out there that have a roadmap and how to resolve this and bring healing together. And Jeffrey Figer found himself in some hot water earlier this week when a federal court filing claimed he filed another $100 million lawsuit against a man who hasn't been employed by the district since last year. The U.S. House voted to hold former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows in contempt for refusing to cooperate with their investigation into the January 6th siege on the Capitol, despite turning numerous documents over to Congress. The documents included numerous text messages from Fox News personalities and Donald Trump Jr. asking Meadows to get the former president to tell everyone storming the Capitol to go home. Meadows faces up to a year in prison if prosecuted. He appeared on the newly launched All Talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz just hours before being charged. Tom, Kevin, great to be with you. Obviously, uh, this is a a challenging day. Uh, uh, Candidly, uh, it's one of those that you had hoped it would never come, but at the same time, uh, you know, as we look at uh, the contempt charges, uh, President Trump has made it very clear that he's claiming executive privilege. I'm not going to be the first chief of staff to waive that. It's not my right to waive. So hopefully, uh, hopefully Congress will look at uh, this a little bit differently. But uh, if not, uh, you know, I'm, I plan to, to stand on principle and, and support uh, the, the executive privilege claim until the courts weigh in. Um, because that's what we've asked them to do, as you have mentioned, the lawsuit. And, uh, you know, I outline in, in my book, The Chief's Chief, just the wonderful things that the president was able to accomplish. And uh, and, and yet uh, today we're, we're sitting here looking at uh, just a continual uh, drip, drip, drip of, of coming against not only President Trump when he was in office, but it continues on still today. The January 6th committee says you're not cooperating. Do you feel you're meeting your obligation to answer the subpoena? And do you feel like you're being transparent with the American people? Well, I'm being transparent with the American people. And, and, and yet at the same time, uh, we, we voluntarily over the last several months have worked very closely with the, the committee to share certain non-privileged information as any good citizen would. We've continued to do that. And, uh, and yet at the same time, what we, we see here is, uh, you know, they're, they seem determined to go ahead and hold us in contempt of court in spite of uh, the executive privilege claim that, that Donald Trump has, uh, in my mind, rightfully uh, uh, claimed. And uh, and that's what courts are for. I mean, it kind of puts me between a rock and a hard place. Uh, you know, I've got the president that I work for claiming executive privilege. You have Congress saying that 
there is no privilege, and, and yet uh, I'm not the arbiter of, of that. Hopefully the courts will be, and you know we, we file a lawsuit uh, to hopefully get the courts to weigh in on this uh, very weighty matter. You say that you're standing on principle. Will you stand on principle all the way if that includes having to go to jail for contempt of Congress or obstruction of justice? Well, obviously, I, I I would prefer not to, uh, you know, have the charges come my way and, and being in, indicted. But at this particular point, um, uh, you know, it, it's, again, not my privilege to waive. And, and if that's where ultimately it leads, uh, you know, I, I don't think that that's doing justice. I don't think it's called for. There certainly is no criminal uh, intent on my part. Um, but, uh, you know, you you know, you're, you're, you're called in, in this, uh, in this country to, to hopefully, uh, stand up for the rule of law. That's what I'm, I'm doing. I know our attorneys are weighing in on that. So I, I don't want to get any more specific. I'm not an attorney, but I, I'm doing, uh, hopefully what, uh, uh, any, any prudent chief of staff would do is, is, uh, trying to get clarification on the law. Yes, uh, January 6th commission, they're trying to prove intent that you were sending messages contesting the election outcome and that in part those messages are what led to what they call this insurrection. Uh, do you have any uh, desire or see any positive outcome if you were to appear before the committee and just try to make your case? Well, obviously, uh, when when we look at uh you know, uh, news stories in the drip, drip, drip that comes out that that uh, doesn't tell the story for me to come on radio and 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 do a full defense would not be appropriate either. And and uh, again, it's uh, you know, I've, I've said publicly that uh, I was not aware of, of anybody in the West Wing uh, that had any advanced knowledge that a security breach was going to happen on January 6th. Uh, quite the contrary. And and so as we look at that, I think uh, some of the facts as they come out, hopefully in the end, will will uh, illuminate a very different story than what uh, many on the January 6th committee are, are trying to put forth right now. But uh, I yeah, again, uh, not to uh, to do the, uh, you know, um, equivocate. I, I, I just want to be very careful not to talk on the, the, the facts of the matter as much, uh, just because I'm, uh, I am trying to honor the privilege and, hmm. and, uh, certainly honor, uh, all that's going on, uh, in Congress. The National Popular Vote Initiative will shift its focus from appearing on the 2022 ballot to the 2024 election. The proposal, which if passed, would award all of Michigan's electoral college votes to the candidate who wins the national popular vote, regardless of if they carry the state of Michigan or not, was introduced by Mark Brewer, former chair of the Michigan Democratic Party, and former chair of the Republican National Committee, Saul Anuzis, who spoke with Chris Runwick. Were you always shooting for 2024? Were you ever shooting for 2022? Well, we were taking a look at both options uh, just to see what would make the most sense. You know, as you're aware, this is this is kind of a big issue. <laughs> we're changing how we elect the president of the United States. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of education that has to be done. There were a lot of conversations that were going on over the last, you know, kind of 90 days. And so we just you know, finally made the decision that it made more sense to give ourselves a little more time to educate the general public, to collect the signatures, to build an organization to support this. 
because it is going to be something that a lot of people will be paying attention to. And, you know, there'll be people on both sides who think it's a great idea and others who won't like it. Uh, at what point uh, the last uh, few months, six months, whatever it's been uh, since you've been exploring this, at, at what point did you say 2022 just isn't going to be good for us, we're not going to be able to get it done? And then what were kind of those things that led you to believe that it wasn't 2022 and instead 24? Well, I mean, we basically made the decision about a week ago. And so pretty much once okay. we decided, we announced it to everybody so that, you know, everybody would know what our intentions were. I mean, look, you've got to take a look at all the factors that are involved in a campaign like this in a, in a large statewide campaign. The more time you have to get organized, the more time you have to educate the voters, the more time you have to you know, collect the signatures and raise the money and do all the fundamental things that you do in a campaign, uh, the better chance you have of putting it together in, a, in an effective way. And so... You know, we just we were moving forward. We're going to continue to move forward. We're going to continue to do what you know, make our efforts. We're going to continue the educational effort. We're going to bring folks together and uh, keep talking to people about what we're trying to do and why and why we think it makes sense. And, uh, you know, I think it's just it's just a strategic decision to give ourselves a little more time to go into 2024 better prepared for, uh, you know, an election. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the Michigan Republican Party uh, has been uh, in opposition of this, uh, of this, as has Representative Matt Hall, uh, who said that that your, the campaign now for the national popular vote is is backtracking. And this has been a, a, a big win for the state. How, how would you how would you react to that? Well, I'm not sure what he's trying to say. I mean, he's wrong. Um, this has nothing to do with us backtracking. We're moving forward. Nothing's changing. Uh, we're not stopping the effort. We're not not doing uh, you know our effort forward. And you know, look, I, I think there's a lot of Republicans who knee jerk against this because they think Al Gore and Hillary Clinton would be president. And there's a lot of Democrats that knee jerk for it because they think Al Gore and Hillary Clinton would be president. And the reality <laughs> is, we've never run a national popular vote. I mean, four out of five Americans live in states that are either decidedly Republican or decidedly Democrat. That are completely ignored during presidential elections. And to me, that's the premise of the whole battle here. I got involved when I was a Michigan Republican Party chairman. One day we were a battleground state, and the next day we weren't. And it had devastating effects for us down tickets, and presidential candidates stopped coming to Michigan. And we've got a lot of unique issues, whether it's our Great Lakes, whether it's our industry, et cetera. So we want presidential campaigns. We want efforts in the state of Michigan, and we want Michigan to be relevant every single time, not just every once in a while when it's a swing state or not. So that's really the premise of this. And I think some of the Republicans who are opposing this, you know, kind of are demagoguing the issue and, and are not being very honest with regards to, you know, why and what they're doing here. And I'm, I'm not sure what they're thinking, but, you know, we'll continue talking to them. And I suspect we'll have a whole lot of Republicans coming out in favor of this. And there'll be other Republicans who will oppose. They'll do it for Pod Suey this week. For full interviews or anything else you might have missed, go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.